How will AI shape society? And how will society shape AI? AI for Society Dialogues explores the work of researchers from the University of Alberta, a global leader in artificial intelligence research. This season, AI for Society partners with Precision Health to learn more about the ways in which AI technologies are shaping the future of healthcare and the exciting advances being made in digital health. Some artists work in clay or paint, but Dr. Marilyn Oliver works with the human body, a digitized version of the human body. Her work explores the zeros and ones that we become when we are rendered into data. Dr. Marilyn Oliver is Assistant Professor of Visual Art at the University of Alberta. Her work is at the crossroads of new digital technologies, traditional print and sculpture, producing objects that bridge the virtual and the real worlds. And she joins me today on AI for Society Dialogues. Dr. Oliver, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, since this podcast is part of the AI for Society research signature area, and it's being done in partnership with Precision Health, I'm asking all of our guests, what does artificial intelligence mean to you? Ah, that's a really interesting uh, question, and I guess it's evolving all the time. And actually, I'm going to have like a very personal anecdote. Um, I just came back from a trip to the Faroe Islands, where my husband is from. And there in the Faroe Islands, there's been a huge, huge change, like a really, it seems like a golden age in the Faroe Islands, where they're managing to really keep a traditional way of life and culture. But at the same time, the reason that's being kept is because their fishing industry has really evolved to incorporate a lot of automated systems. I've just witnessed a really positive way that AI is changing a society and that it's making it much more affluent. Um, but still allowing people to really keep a very strong culture. So on one side, I, I, I see the evidence of how AI can be really positive. But in my work, <laughs> I realize I tend to be very cautious and anxious about AI. I feel it's a, I worry that it's a loss of control um, and that it's, we're focusing on things that mean that we lose our humanity. Um, and we lose human simple simplicity and simple human connection. Um, so that's what I kind of warn about with my work. But at the same with that caveat that I've just witnessed, wow, this, okay, this can really work and it's really helping this, this community. Yeah, I think that really sums it up. You've really painted the spectrum of, of this technology and how it's having such a, a wide range of impacts. So let's get into to talking a bit more about your work. Um, and you focus a lot on medical scan data. And um, when I talk to people about data and the many, many ways that they use it, it's a little bit different how you use this medical scan data as material for your artwork. So what inspired you to look at medical imaging data as art? I guess as an artist, things kind of evolve and one project grows to the other. Um, so I was doing a research project when I was a student a long, long time ago. Um, and it was about the virtual versus the physical body. And when I was doing that research, I came across the Visible Human Project, which was a project that digitized a human cadaver um, and made it a navigable Kind of anatomical resource for medical students. And when I first encountered that website, so this is back in like the late 80s, it was a website where you got a cross-section sort of head to toe through this body. You could click on it anywhere and then you got like a, a horizontal cross-section through the body. 
And it was such a weird way of encountering a human in that you could never see them all at once. Um, but it was incredibly intimate. You were really seeing this like deep inside their body. And that's what got me into the medical imaging. It was because of this way of seeing the body, of it being fractured, being very internal, sort of promising some kind of interiority, um, but being uh, aggressive is not the right word, but yeah, very alien. So I made a sculpture using the Visible Human Project. I wanted to relocate him in time and space. So I downloaded all the cross sections and screen printed them onto sheets of clear acrylic, stacked them back up again so that he was sort of represented. And then that then led on, I, somebody told me at the exhibition, but you know you can do this with living bodies, <laughs> with MRI. I didn't even know what MRI was at the time. And so that's what got me into it. And then it's been such an exciting field that is developing and evolving like so rapidly that I can't, can't stop working with it. Um, and then, of course, as life continues, it's gone beyond maybe the, proceed, like the process of this imaging to becoming something that how does this medical imaging, what impact does it have on your life? What does it signify? And as, as you kind of age and you realize what this scan can mean in many different ways, that it's changed the nature of my work. Yeah, and I definitely want to dig into that with you more. I find it so fascinating how the brain of an artist works and in, in being inspired by by something in that way. And I understand that, you know, there's a real personal dimension as well to your work um, and that it started out by by looking at your family. Can you tell us a, a little bit about that story of, of how you got started and incorporated your family in some of your work? Yeah, so actually it goes back to that first sort of story that when I first exhibited, it's called I Know You Inside Out. Um, the visible human. When I was told that you could do this with MRI, I went straight away to think about a family portrait. Like, what do you want to preserve? I also really loved the film Weird Science. Um, so it's kind of, I don't know if you know about that, where they kind of scan in all these different images of their idol woman and then create this uh, woman. Um, but the idea of trying to preserve the loved one so that if later they could be brought back to life or rematerialized in a way, and so it was kind of really subverting the form of the family portrait. So that's why I, I did it. And it was also, I, my, my parents were divorced. So it was also playing with that idea of the lies that digital media tells, how easy it is to splice things together and smooth things over. Um, so that was another reason for doing the family portrait. That is super fascinating. I totally remember that film, Weird Science. That was like early Sigourney Weaver. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, <laughs> and it sounds like as you talk about splicing, I'm thinking about deep fakes. And I'm like, wow, I think maybe Dr. Oliver was making kind of a deep fake sort of uh, commentary before deep fakes here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, yeah, it was, that was the end. Could you just, and it was that, I think it was also that time I was, and I still am, that you can click on an icon and then open up all this reality um, and this idea then of doing that as a sculpture, because these sculptures are flat packed, that you can take all these images, then expand them and they become this other reality in 3D space. About the family, I guess it also goes back to the human connection and this intimate relationship. And of course, the, you know, for me, the most intimate relationship was with my close family. And so to distance them, to fragment them in that way and to make them, for the sculptures to work, you need a lot of space in between each of the slices. So they get emptied out. So they're also empty. Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, and I know that you've spoken um, in other talks about memorializing your mother in some of your work um, after she became ill. Um, would you mind telling us a little bit about that story? 
Um, so my mother had early onset Lewy body dementia. Mm. So that, I guess, has really made me think about all these intelligent systems we have around us. And we're creating all these intelligent systems that uh, when my mother was becoming ill, were completely out of uh, her usability and also created so much stress. Like all these forms and all these online interfaces were so stressful for her, for us, for everybody. Um, and it made me think about this intelligence systems. And then we have like dementia is a huge, huge social issue. It's like there's a real disconnect there. So I, I reflected on that a lot. But I think one of the strongest things was that so I've been working with medical imaging for what by that point, by 15, 16 years. And I hadn't really realized the power of the scan because we didn't believe it. I didn't believe mum had Lewy body dementia until the doctor showed us this scan. And so the scan became the truth. The scan became the thing that we believed and it changed everything. And then these scans are beautiful. They, these scans that prove my mother's illness are spectacular. They're really colorful. They're called DAT scans. Um, they're like fireworks in the brain. And I just remember being so sickened seeing these scans and thinking, so they, I can see the illness, but at that point she was kind of forgetting who I was, but then I couldn't see myself in her mind, her brain, how we kind of jumbled these things up now. And then I just kind of by accident, I'd been wanting to try and she, I remember her sort of saying to me at one point, I really want you to make work about this. Uh, so I did want to make a piece of work about the situation. And I was thinking about this tagging, so these fluorescence, these beautiful colors. And I'd, in my sketchbook, I was kind of constantly drawing dots and then highlighting them as if which, which is an important dot or which is an important data point. And then by accident, I spilled water in my bag and then it made all these images um, kind of leak and smudge. And so then the dots, the original dots disappeared and all you had was the highlight. So it made me think about a performance work. So I made this large, uh, print out of her brain and then I drenched my body in water and then laid on the scan and that smudged the ink and then I went through and highlighted all those the smudge outline to kind of embed myself in her brain. So much to unpack there I mean one of the things that strikes me is you know I, I guess a couple of things first of all having that image as the evidence the evidence that something was wrong and kind of not believing it um, until you were confronted with that visual evidence. And then this idea of forgetting that a person with dementia forgetting, but you're capturing kind of this digital imprint of literally their brain, and yet they're forgetting all of these memories that they had. And so, yeah, there's something really interesting about all of that and just kind of exploring that in your work. Um, and I, I think that's a good segue into sort of this next area I wanted to cover with you. And that's this idea about the convergence between technology and biology. And um, what has your art helped you to understand uh, in general about how we relate to technology and how we understand ourselves as, as biological beings? Hmm, another really interesting question. Um, I think it's always evolving because technology is evolving so quickly and our bodies are evolving all the time. So like what you think today is different from what you might think tomorrow or what we thought 10 years ago. So I guess maybe that's the first, that's my first kind of answer. And then thinking about now what I find really interesting is like I think when I first started, my kind of fear or anxiety as an artist was that the body would become superfluous, that you would become this kind of like, you know, these kind of like a, 
would just be meat. And that's what that was the cyberpunk thing that it was just going to be meat that wasn't really useful. Uh, but what I see now, so like relating to like this new project that I'm working on, which is called Your Data Body, where I'm trying to collect as much data as I can about myself as an individual and then visualize it in virtual reality, is actually the biometric data is becoming more and more important and key to unlock everything else. That actually the physical body is very important. And also the way that every element and aspect of it seems to be trying to be quantified and calculated all the time that actually the physical body is more and more important in this world, which I find that it, I find it really hard to kind of reconcile that we are pushing ourselves out of our bodies, but then our, the actual body is still the key to unlock all the data that we have. It, it's super interesting hearing you talk about this, because I, I think about things like the singularity, where we're just going to upload our consciousness. And as you say, disengage from our bodies and our, our bodies are not going to be needed. Um, but in, in hanging out in various AI spheres, I find that even the AI itself is needing the embodied form in order to learn better or or to kind of move towards this artificial general intelligence. So it, it is quite interesting what you're saying about how the body is such a necessary component, whether it's quantifying all the, the data that's coming from our bodies or thinking about AI as, as needing to be embodied in some way. It's really interesting. You know, we're kind of moving into this maybe bigger uh, sociocultural commentary um, so, you know, would it be fair to say that your art is a sociocultural commentary? Can you talk and explore maybe a little bit more? We've touched on some of these themes, but if you want to maybe dive into that just a little bit deeper and, and maybe pull out some of that with reference to either some of your past work or, or maybe some of the things you're currently working on right now. Well, I would definitely hope that my work does uh, is a sociocultural commentary. Um, or I always think about it like regurgitation. Uh, that you kind of live your you live and existent in the society that you are, and then you try and reflect it as an artist for others to um, also kind of question. So I guess the social cultural elements that I'm working through when I talk about my new my present work is about being a data generator, organizer, worker, owner, appropriator. I think that is part of what we all do and we don't even really realize it. Or maybe we do. Maybe I think people are coming a lot, becoming a lot more aware of how much uh, we are involved with creating data and responsible for data. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm really trying to focus on it. And by thinking about how much data I actually create and that I work with, and then also how much data I work with, with from other people and trying to make artworks about that. So I guess I'm, my comment is that I'm worried that uh, we spend too much time with that there's, and there's no way of escaping it. That's why I fear more and more is that, is there a choice not to? And if we choose not to enter into this computational data-driven world, what, what access do we have to other human rights, such as healthcare? Um, how, do we, how, do you, how can you be part of the world if you don't buy into this and that? That is what I'm trying to really kind of reflect in my work at the moment. Do you think it is impossible to be part of the modern world if you don't buy into that? I mean, we started our conversation talking about a small fishing village and um, and the technology and kind of the, you know, the, the dichotomy between those two images um, existing, coexisting. But yeah, what are your thoughts about living in this world and maybe wanting to not be part of that or wanting to limit it in some way? Is that even possible? I think this is all happening. It's all playing out at the moment, so I don't really know. But my fear is that I, how would you access 
healthcare if you don't have your digital ID, um, your health ID and banking? How do you access all these things if you don't have all these identifiers and you haven't registered yourself in all these systems? I mean, this has been, people have talked about this uh, forever. We've been warned about this forever, but I just see it becoming so so hard to escape and especially if we have like the internet of things and it's just everywhere and there are positives but there has there's got to be a limit to it and especially if it's driven by capitalism why are some of these things being done and how happy and the end of the of course the end is what the, it's the happiness and does it make people unhappy or unhappy and and of course we want to make a happier world for everybody and a fairer world for everybody and i think there's clear evidence that that is not a byproduct of this data-driven, computationally complex world. What have been some of people's reactions to your work? Have people shared uh, some of their reactions with you? And I'm just kind of curious to know how people, you know, when they encounter your work, how they experience it. I guess I have quite a few different kind of works. I mean, some people find it quite frightening because it is quite, uh, I guess, there's definitely feel to it. I understand that ghostliness. So uh, maybe there's kind of a bit of fear. Um, and then hopefully there's a bit of awe with it, like the the VR works, which I think are, um, I find very exciting in that. So you have this MRI scanned body, which is a four, well, I have 3D and 4D volumetric scan data, which in virtual reality therefore means you put the headset on and it's as close to seeing a ghost as, like, as we understand ghosts. It's very spectral. It's like a cloud. Um, and you can put your head inside it, explore on the ins- like explore around this kind of scanned figure, which is kind of semi-transparent and ghostly. So I would hope people, I think I've seen I've seen people be very moved by that work, and really uh, keeps holds people for a long time. That's amazing. I feel like we're we're having a hard time doing this justice on an audio only uh, channel here. So people are going to have to definitely check out your website and or go to an exhibit and and actually experience your work in person because it is so powerful. I do want to I want to touch on data a little bit more. We've kind of we've uh, scanned the surface of this just a little bit, but I just want to um, ask you about your own relationship in using uh, medical scan data, a very intimate source of data in your work. And just talk about that from the perspective of ethics and privacy and consents. And can you share some thoughts on your own relationship to the use of data in your work? Again, it's been evolving. Um, and I'm really, really sort of very, very interested in it. So the visible human, I go back to the first project, like it was his form, but also the story of the subject of the data that was I really felt needed to be explored. The subject of the scan was Joseph Paul Jernigan. He was on death row, and he was identified as being a perfect specimen to be part of the Visible Human Project. And he was offered a lethal injection rather than the electric chair if he donated his body to medical science. And now, and then he was then frozen, sliced very finely every slice was photographed. He was then uploaded to the internet and his body has been used and reused and is still constantly being used for many, many different research projects that he couldn't possibly have imagined. Ethics of that I find so fascinating and questionable. And it goes back to the whole history of anatomy that convicts have been used for anatomy. Um, but he's the, like, date, the data body, the first big data body. And then after that, uh, Later on, I also encountered another data set, which I have worked with a lot, called Melanix, and that was an anonymized data set. So if data, medical data is anonymized, 
it can be free to use for research. And maybe in the beginning, that was, it seemed like, okay, it's anonymous and I can't make no way of telling who it is. But as technology has changed, now you can do these really high resolution volume renderings and it's recognizable. You can recognize people from these renderings. Um, so you, it is not, it's impossible for it to be anonymous. Uh, so my relationship with that has changed a lot. But as an artist, I, I also feel that it's important to reflect the reality of what's happening. So making artworks with it, I feel, was an important way of showing that this, what this is happening. And then now in the, these current works, I'm really questioning it. Like So by making this project called My Data Body, where I'm trying to collect as much of the data I know that I have produced or that is, exists about me into one piece, it's kind of trying to show all that, what it is to be a data body. And then your data body is working with different kinds of data sets that are available. And so Visible Human is in it, Melanix is in it, and also a lot of open source uh, data sets, which probably originally were for medical research, but are now open source and can be used. Just to kind of create an environment where we kind of like really, because when in virtual reality, you can really handle them. You can pick them up, you can kind of put them, move them around, and it really makes it that in your hands, you're holding it. So you're responsible what happens with this data now, just to hopefully slow down some thinking about what it means when you're working with other people's data. And maybe it's fine. Maybe it's okay. Maybe as a society, we agree this is fine. We're all happy for it. But let's just take a moment and really think about it and make sure everyone understands what's happening when they're putting their data out there. And maybe, honestly, not because I'm going to keep going on about it, but maybe we have enough. It's also like there's so much data out there. Maybe we have enough data. We can stop, like, making more data. Yeah. In terms of volume, like when you encountered your own data, what what was that like? And like, I mean, I don't know if you have the exact numbers or if you just, you know, what was your reaction in kind of getting access to your own data? Originally, you were talking about how you were kind of one of your first subjects. I'm just curious about that. About my own MRI scans? Yeah. Um, well, it's always funny. Like when I came off the scanner, the uh, radiographer asked me if I had a bullet in my heart. Um, because there was, a, I guess there was an artifact, oh, no, a bit of metal in my heart. And I guess it's because there's an artifact that was just happened in my heart. So it kind of like, there's that uh, thing that firstly, that you're just really interested to see what's inside. And then there's the fear if you see something like I completely can understand that uh, misreading of scans and trying to find meaning in them when you're untrained. Um, yeah, I just see it like, because I'm, an, I just see it as a material to work with. Um, and I'm just really interested in playing with it. And I feel completely free to work with it. There's, there's a real freedom in being able to work with my own data that I don't feel with other data sets. So I could do anything to it. Yeah, obviously, because it's your data and you're consenting to do uh, the, the work with it. Um, and I'm wondering about, um, you know, when I think about vulnerable populations, like this first uh, person that you described and how, I mean, consent was really, do you want this kind of death or that kind of death? And if you let us do these things and, you know, with your data, then you get this other treatment that's maybe maybe a little more humane, but still not a, gr a great choice, not r really a good bargain. And I kind of think about that in the context of, um, you know, obviously the consequences aren't quite as high, but just the data that we give away every day when we sign up for these terms and conditions to use different products. I mean, is it possible? in today's world to to have consent be kind of a standard for uh, for data that's used in research, or is that just not possible anymore? Yes, because I think we'll use, use it for a very specific reason, like purpose, huh? So like if it's for scans, you can 
definitely you have to make sure you really, really explain what you're using the data for and then sort of go go back and check like for the projects. If I was to work with somebody's MRI scan to then show them the project and make sure they still consent. Um, so kind of ongoing consent. Um, and generally people are very consenting. Uh, like I've, 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 people have given me data to work with and they're very open and free about that usage. And so that's really, really great. But this, this is just a metaphor for other things. huh? It's like consenting to give me the body scan data and then, is a metaphor for all the other data that we are consenting to, but maybe not really fully understanding what that data might be used for. Yeah, I think that's very true. Absolutely. I'm just going to segue a bit into talking a bit about machine learning. And um, I mean, I can just imagine the vast uh, amounts of data that you're processing. And can you tell us a little bit more about your artistic process, like in terms of exactly, um, you've talked a bit about what inspires you, but how do you actually go about doing your work? And what does that look like? And does it involve machine learning? I haven't really done the thing yet, but we are working on something now. So at the moment, what I'm, I do is what, like find ways of visualizing data. That's what I've been doing. So these virtual, say, say the virtual reality works. It's so you have the, the scanned body. I talk about my data body, which is kind of hovering in virtual space. And then what I've done is taken cross sections through the scanned body and then converted that to social media data. So social, like in the bones, for example, it's the Mac terminal data. In the muscle, it's Google data. In the fat, it's Facebook information. Also have like a veins and arteries system where there's passwords and logins going. I have a dental scan embedded in there. Like there's lots and lots of uh, facial recognition scans kind of watching around this body. So it's kind of really trying to compile all these different sources of data that come from one individual into one world, which then an audience, like a, a viewer could, the idea is they'll then just dissect this body and see or dissect all this data and pull it apart. But then there's something in the program that then makes all the data go back and refind its original location. So you can never pull everything apart. It always finds, but goes back to its original source. For the other projects, uh, your data body, what we're working on now is creating a conversational AI that will be triggered when you pick up certain data sets. So when you pick up the visible human, Melanix, and myself, you'll be able to have a conversation with those data sets about the different nature of their data. And that's been a fascinating process because to do that, we have to pretend to be these characters. Many, many, like 50 times, have to have like 50 conversations pretending to be the visible human and talking about the way that he feels about his data and Melanie's talking about her data. So it's been a, and it's very interesting process because I think what it does do is really encourage empathy and really deep thought. If you are that data set and you're, re and you're having to play them, then you really understand it in a very unique way. So at the moment, I would say very interesting relationship that the generating data for the AI is creating a very deep and human understanding of the subject. So do you have a, a team of people that are working with you to do this? Yes, yes, a huge team, a huge, fabulous team of well, I say team, my colleagues and like, so I've been very fortunate to be very well supported uh, through funding. So I have a, a team called the Know Thyself team. Uh, so there's researchers from many different departments, engineering, radiology, uh, music, uh, humanities. 
And then together we're working on this project. So we have and there many, many research assistants who are helping as well. Uh, and everybody kind of brings their own expertise and understanding to the project. So it's kind of evolving and yeah, it's a, a really privilege to work on this with so many wonderful people. Yeah, I think it's really interesting when you look at the collaborations that are happening, uh, especially between the traditional kind of STEM fields and then people in the arts and the humanities. Um, what's that been like for your colleagues who, who come from the traditional STEM field working on an arts-based project? Have they talked to you about that experience at all? Well, I've only had positive things. They may say different things uh, uh, behind my back. Um all the way along my career, I, I had this reaction that researchers working in radiology and computer science and other fields know how how much potential there is uh, to explore this as an artistic form and, and visually, but they're not able to mm. because their focus is on something different. But they regret not having that time. So I've always had, I've always, I've been thinking it would be great to do something about this, or like there's so this is so great that there's somebody working on this. So it's always been really, really positive, and. Yeah, I, can't, I, I guess people are, tend to be very excited about it and very, very supportive and generous with their time and expertise. Um, and they always seem to be very genuinely surprised by kind of the ideas and, uh, and, and actually like and maybe there's some real interest in, interesting in the misunderstandings between us. Mm-hmm. Um, that tends to be the most kind of fertile area. So we realize, oh, I, but I thought you meant this and I meant, thought you meant that. And they go, but, oh, but that's a really good idea. Uh, so, for example, the conversational AI being the data sets came from a misunderstanding between myself and, and Nathan Mader, who works in Cogpro. Um, I thought we were going to make like an assistant in the space that would assist viewers. And then he just thought it was going to be the actual data sets. And it was because of that that we just went this direction. Oh, I love that story. That is so cool. So you had kind of this um, misalignment of thoughts that kind of launched your your project in a direction. That's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, that's happened. I think that's happened many times. <laughs> yeah, because artists like to like go with a thing that's kind of a bit wrong and make it and fix it and make it like explore its potential. That's wonderful. I was also thinking back to uh, what we talked about, you kind of being struck by the beauty of the imagery in in your mother's brain scans, but someone who's a medical professional might not have saw it that way necessarily. They might just have saw the medical, this is medical data and I'm, I'm reading the diagnosis of the scan. Um, so it's such a different way of, of looking at kind of the same artifact, uh, which I find really fascinating. We have talked a lot about ethics and data, and it's such an important and vast area. And there's, you know, a lack of guidelines in a lot of cases. People are just having to kind of figure things out as they go. I understand that you are working on a set of ethical guidelines uh, for the use of medical scan data that's going to be beneficial for both the scientific community as well as the artistic community. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. So this came as when I started working with them. The medical scan data in virtual reality, I had to apply, of course, for ethics um, approval. And then I was told I didn't need ethics approval because it was creative research, which I, I completely, like, I, I very much thank all the people that worked so hard for that to keep the artistic freedom. But I actually really want guidance and I want to know what the standard is and what the best way of working with this data is. I want to make sure I'm doing the best way, you know, working the best way I can. And, and it's so complex and the technology is evolving so much that I need expert, an expert guidance on it. Uh, I felt there was a real gap in 
for that um, in the research field. So we did a lot of, again, with working with research assistants and, and colleagues, have done a big literature review to understand what the different kind of data protection and privacy usage uh, regulations are and realize, one, that they're emerging really rapidly. Two, there's a lot of overlap, but there are differences and it uh, depends very much where you are, where the data comes from. And so we decided, yeah, just, I, I realized we really need to make some guidelines. Not that they're, they're not like rules, they're guidance. And just to say that we've done this research, this is what we found out. And this is where we think the best way of working with and understanding like uh, creative commons licenses, um, understanding what informed consent is and ongoing consent is. There's um, some really great visual research ethics guides, which were made by Susan Cox and her team. So we're also be working very closely looking at them and I guess we're hoping really to kind of develop on those to include the uh, nuances of working with digital data and I see it as they're not going to be finished they'll never be finished because the technology is constantly changing um, so we will use these projects that we're working on as case studies and then later the intention is to be inviting other artists to also work with some of the data and the software that we've created and then see what their experience of, is of working with the data. Because I think we need to do it. You need to actually try it and push yourself and test yourself to understand. We need to work through it to understand what, what is right and what is wrong or, or what we feel comfortable and, and not and, and be, be open and honest about the decisions that we make. Yeah, it's such a big area. And you're right, it's it's shifting so rapidly. And it it, um, it strikes me that when you're kind of a pioneer in any field, you, you have to kind of build your own tools, you're, you're wanting the expert guidance, but in realizing that it's absent, you kind of have to go out there and, and do it yourself. And it sounds like that's what you're pioneering for, uh, not only yourself, but for other people. So that's wonderful. I want to, uh, we're kind of uh, wrapping up on our time here, but I, I did want to touch a bit more on uh, your your thoughts about where we're going uh, big picture, just kind of pulling back on all of this. You you started this work many, many years ago, been involved in this field for a very long time. You've seen a lot of different iterations and, and changes. Where do you think all this is going? What are your thoughts on the future for where we're headed? I have to answer that in a funny way. I guess thinking about what I thought 20 years ago is nowhere near what I thought is now. So I don't, like, I, I find I'll definitely be inaccurate. And I don't want to be too pessimistic because we need to get to tomorrow. So I hope that people will make decisions about how much this kind of data and computation will rule their lives. Um, and I hope that it will become more of a political issue. I see it definitely in the media, it's becoming more and more a political issue and that people will have limits to how much this is invading our lives and our privacy and our emotion and our personal relationships. So that's my hope is that uh, we will as a society come together and say, okay, draw some boundaries about how much it invades our lives. Um, but then maybe on a practical side, I think biometrics is gonna be a really big thing in the next 10 years that we are going to be the body is going to be the unlocker of our data mm. i think covid i think it's going to happen like just thinking now in the university they've got to make you know you've got to declare your vaccination status and we see organizations grappling with how to actually do that properly all over the world how do you do it unless it's connected to the actual body uh, I can see, like, I, like, it's a really worrying thing, but I can see how it's the solution. And like, I was just in Europe having to show all my passes and then with banking, like having a bit of a nightmare with banking after having like 
fought for that for 20 like days and days in the end okay if I have to do a retinal scan to be able to unlock my bank account I would have maybe been ready to do it mm. so exasperated with these systems that maybe we'll give in and so that's a, a fear and I think it will happen in the next sort of 10 10 years that the body will be the key wow well yeah I think you're probably right and I too have uh, oscillate between the dystopian nightmare scenario and wanting to see something more hopeful. So we'll, but we'll end on a hopeful note. Yeah. Um, and I'll just ask you, so what's next for you? What's next for you in your work? Where are things going? I just, I like, I, I guess this, these virtual reality projects, I'm in the middle of them. So I really want to resolve them. Um, I have an exhibition coming up at a, in a space called about light in Edmonton and it's an interactive uh, multimedia projection space. So I'm very excited to extend from virtual reality out into the actual physical space that is, so it's also interactive. Um, that's what I see the next thing is kind of extending out of VR, um, into the actual space and, uh, and sharing. I really want other artists to work with this too and see what they think about it. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Oliver, I just want to say thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. AI for Society Dialogues is a co-production between AI for Society and Precision Health, two signature research areas at the University of Alberta. Find out more about AI for Society at AIforsociety.ca and Precision Health on the University of Alberta website. You can find out more about me, Katrina Ingram, at ethicallyalignedai.com. This podcast was produced at the University of Alberta, located on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional homelands of First Nations and Métis peoples. Our technical producer is Corey Stroder, and our theme music is Seeing the Future by Dexter Britton. Special thanks to Kali Vitella for research and production support. Stay connected to AI for Society. Sign up for our newsletter at AIforSociety.ca.